Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. When was the last time you experienced real worship? What was it like? Was there a special formula you had to follow to attain that level of worship? The beginning of Romans 12 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer begins a new series that focuses on what the Bible says about worship. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, What is Worship? Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We are officially in Christmas season. Don't know if you've noticed it yet or not. Uh, of course, if you asked Walmart and Hobby Lobby, they've been in Christmas season for the last, what, two months, three months? Something like that. I think if right after the back to school sales that they have, you know, Christmas starts to come out. But we're officially in full swing now with the Thanksgiving holiday in the rearview mirror. Many of you have already or have been in the process of putting up your Christmas decorations as many of us have. Uh, Our house is usually a week of putting up Christmas decor as it looks like we're moving in. You know, uh, that's about how it goes. But Christmas means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For us, for some of us, it's uh, we're looking forward to some parties that we're having. We're looking forward to family gathering with us again, uh, the exchange of gifts. For many of us, it's a very nostalgic time of the year. Remember Christmas's past, remember as a child, and uh, different Christmas events. Maybe, maybe for you, it's about Christmas traditions. You go out to the Paramount Festival of Trees and Trains, some of you we saw out there this weekend, and, uh, or, or some of the many other Christmas traditions that we have. But can I offer to you that Christmas at its core may include some of these things, and there's nothing wrong with many of these things, but Christmas at its core is primarily about worship. It's not primarily about how we feel. It's not primarily about gathering with friends. It's not about just warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, It's not about jingle bells. That Christmas, at its core, is a time of worship. It's meant to call us to the worship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christmas itself is a word that comes from the Old English, Christus Mese, uh, which started being used uh, in the first, or in the, what, about a thousand something BC, or AD, uh, with the Catholic Church, and it was referred to a religious celebration uh, for the Catholic Church at that time, a religious mass. And so it was a celebration of Christ's birth. It's also the Catholics, by the way, that have us worshiping Christ's birth on December 25th. Was he born on that day? We don't know when he was born, uh, in all likelihood. Not that day, but that's a day that they set aside. Uh, Some try to say that we shouldn't be worshiping Christmas at all. We should worship Christ, but don't ever mention Christmas. Some who have villainized this holiday, uh, they say that it's part of some ancient pagan celebration called Saturnalia. Uh, And while that has proximity to Christmas, understand that Saturnalia was like from the 17th to the 23rd and was not at all related to Christmas. In fact, Christmas and what we often sing the 12 days of Christmas, from a Christmas to what they called Epiphany, a celebration of the time when the Magi would recognize Christ, was December 25th to to January 5th. And so it was not in any way correlated to pagan worship. 
Now, having said that, because of its proximity to some of these things, you'd have some people who would try to straddle the world in Christianity, and they would bring in some of their pagan elements to Christmas, like the Yule log as they're making an offering to the god Yule, or mistletoe, which comes from ancient Norse uh, celebrations, has nothing to do with true Christmas. Uh, there are th elements that people have brought in, but Christmas at its core is a celebration of Jesus Christ and our giving thanks, our gratitude to God that he has sent us his son to come and die in our place. And so there's nothing wrong with celebrating Christmas. Enjoy it guilt-free. But what I'd like to offer to you is don't celebrate simply a secular Christmas. Just a Christmas about Santa Claus and reindeer and jingle bells and gift giving and fun holiday gatherings and lots of food. That Christmas, Christ Mese, is a mess. It is a worship of Jesus Christ. And to leave him out of that worship would be to throw this grand, lavish party for someone and not inviting the guest of honor. And so we need to make sure that Christmas is primarily a time of worship. And so we're entering into a series. We're just calling Come Let Us Adore Him. Uh, between now and the new year, we're just going to focus on what is worship. And we'll be in coming weeks looking at specific passages where people were worshiping in the Christmas story and what we can learn about worship ourselves. Now, worship is one of those terms that's difficult to define. You'll see a lot of different definitions of worship because worship is so all-encompassing of the Christian life. And it's a term that we use very flippantly. We just talk about worship, and usually your thought goes to just simply singing. You know, and that is certainly an element of worship. But that is not all that worship is. <clears throat> one of the better definitions I've seen of worship comes from a fellow named John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, or previously, uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he simply says this about worship. It's not a short one. It's not just going to roll off your tongue. You're not going to memorize it uh, right off the bat here, but he says, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, and being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. I told you it was a mouthful, uh, but it's a good definition of worship. It's not just our singing. It's the whole, whole physical life response to the, the beauty and the glory, the revelation of who God is and his salvation of us. Now, there's no singular passage in the Bible that defines worship, but I think uh, you could do worse than Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you look at that. It's one of the few passages in the Bible that explicitly says, this is worship. And it goes like this. <clears throat> he says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we're going to begin there. And Romans 12:1 begins with what I would say is the motivation for worship. Understand that Romans 12 finds itself in the greater context of the entire book of Romans, whose theme is the righteousness of God by faith. 
Okay, the entire book, if you want to understand what salvation is, how to be saved. I mean, Martin Luther just read the book of Romans and got saved just from reading the book of Romans. So if you want to understand what true conversion is, what salvation is, read the book of Romans. It begins in talking about where this righteousness comes from. It doesn't come from us. He says, Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. We don't have righteousness in us. We're not born naturally good. Bible says no man in Romans 3 seeks after God. None of us do. And then he goes on to show us how the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to continue to preach the gospel to us. And and what we just read early, we just read through the whole gospel. You know, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we can be saved too. That all who call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13 says, shall be saved. And so that is the glorious message of Romans is is that you and I, we were lost and we were dead in our trespasses and sins and there's nothing we can do to make ourselves better with God. But God being a loving shepherd came down and he found us lost sheep and he brought us to himself, brought us into the fold and and offers us eternal life through Jesus. And then we arrive at Romans 12. And Paul feels that understanding the gospel and what God has saved you from should be a sufficient motivation to bring us to a place of worship. We see here that worship is the purpose of all things, A. Romans 12, one begins, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore, whenever you see it in the Bible, I'm gonna make you pause. Every time you see therefore, it should be a stop sign in your Bible study. Why do you say therefore? What is it therefore? And then we're going to look previously. It means, don't you go reading on further until you understand what was just been said. Well, what was just said in, in Romans eleven thirty six is this. For, talking about Jesus Christ, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul feels that if you're going to worship, you need to understand that message fully first. From him through him and to him. It's really a summary of Colossians chapter one, verse 16, he says, all things were created through him and for him, talking about Christ. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together and that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is, everything is from him. Jesus created all things. Everything is through him. In him all things hold together. Jesus sustains all things and all things are to him that in the future, everything is, if you will, gift-wrapped for Jesus, it belongs to him. So our past, present, and future all belongs to Jesus Christ, and that should be a sufficient reason for us to worship and to worship him alone. And so worship begins with this understanding that in Jesus Christ, everything is from him, it's through him, and it is to him. It's all exclusively for his glory. That religion is not primarily something for you and I. But a lot of us feel that way. We feel like the reason God came to earth and died in our place is because I am so worthy. Why wouldn't God die for me? Why wouldn't he save me? That Jesus' primary purpose in coming to earth was the salvation of my soul, and it was not, it was for his own glory. And so he came to earth, everything is from him, through him, and to him. And so when we worship, if we start using terms like my body, my home, my money, my life, my time, my energy, we're not in a sufficient place to worship because all of those things belong to God. The Bible says you have been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body, which belongs to him. 
You know, it's sort of like when you buy your child at you know, Christmas time, a lot of times parents, we love to lavish gifts upon our kids, most of us. And uh, we'll do what we can for them. You don't have to have a lot of money, but we do what we can. And so we get these children all these gifts that we've been kind of paying attention to that we, they want throughout the year. And we give them, you know, this little Christmas stocking and we stuff it full of just junk food and things that's gonna make them hyperactive before we send them to grandma. And that's Christmas morning for a lot of us. And sometimes as a parent, you're sitting there and you're watching your child enjoy the, the bounty of what you have given them. And you see them dumping out this massive pile of candy. Uh, and you just think, you know, I'd like one of those Reese's peanut butter cups, okay? And you ask your child for one of those cups, and he's, all of a sudden, he starts pushing them back in the bag. He doesn't want to share with you. And your first thought as a parent is kind of, well, that's odd. What should the natural response of this child be? I mean, after all, if he really contemplated his life comes from us, okay? He didn't, he's not alive because he willed himself to be here. Uh, his home, his room, he always talks about being my room. What do parents like to say? Not my room, my house, you know? And so this, the room belongs to you. You paid for the clothes that he is wearing. The fact that this child is, you know, has fairly clean teeth is because you make them brush their teeth. Everything in their life is because of you. And yet they won't even give a small offering of a peanut butter cup to a parent because they fail to understand and recognize that everything that they have is, is because of you. And I think in some ways we can be that way with God in our worship of him as we can be stingy with God. We don't recognize that everything is from him. And God has given this great bounty, the house that we have. It's not because we're such hard workers. God gave that. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. If I have relatively good health today, it comes from God. If I have clothes to wear, this all comes from God. If the fact that I have life comes from God, the fact that I can hear and understand, it's a gift of God. All of this comes from God. And yet we won't often want to even pause to take time to give God an offering of praise. We want to, want to take time to pray or to read his word because I've got better things to do than to think about God. And Romans 12 is saying, I, I, I appeal to you, I beg for you, brothers, therefore consider that everything is from, through, and to him. He also says that be worship is a response to God's mercy. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God. He says that the contemplation of this certain fact should motivate every believer to a state of worship, and that is understanding the mercy of God. Now, mercy is a word who at its root is a word that means pity or compassion. It describes God's basic disposition toward mankind, that God isn't a vengeful God toward us. He's not a hateful God toward us. God does not wish us evil. 1 Peter 2 talks about how that he longs, he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's basic disposition uh, toward mankind. Even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33, 11, just after Israel was caught engaging in idolatry, the worship of other gods, uh, adultery, they were, God said that they were just being overbearing and oppressing other people. Even in that context, Ezekiel delivers this message from God. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't enjoy that. He says, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. That's the mercy of God. Okay, that, that God has given us everything that we possibly need to, to be right with him. In God's basic disposition towards man is mercy and compassion and love. What did Jesus do looking at Jerusalem who would later, later uh, crucify him? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen under my wing, but you would not. That's God's basic disposition toward us. That all we like sheep have gone astray, but the loving shepherd desires to gather them. And so this is the mercy of God. 
It's God withholding the punishment that you and I rightfully deserve because of our sins. There's nothing that you and I have done to earn that eternal life. In, in, in fact, we have gone astray. Uh, we have sinned, and the, the, the wages of that sin is death. And while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. He died in our place so that he could withhold the punishment that we rightly deserve. That's mercy. And God says that when a Christian really reflects upon that, what you have been saved from, the sin you've been saved from, who you used to be, and where you were headed, when you contemplate the mercy of God, that alone should be a sufficient reason to offer up God worship. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, that when you contemplate what hell is, when you contemplate the wickedness of the things that you and I have done, the natural response is worship. Have you ever, had, have you ever been saved from anything? I mean, not, I'm not talking about salvation, you saved from hell here. Have you ever had your life saved by an individual in particular? Okay. I have on very few occasions, okay? Uh, one time I would attribute it to one of my doctors who saved me. Uh, but there was a time I was specifically saved from drowning. I've told you this before, but I'll, I'll share it again because it's the best illustration that I have of when I've had my life saved. But I was a little boy living in Clear Lake, Iowa, didn't know how to swim. Okay, and I'm at the deep end of the dock with one of my buddies. And I'm just a little boy at this time. And I'm, I'm way out on the dock. We're, we're being dangerous little boys, you know, sitting with our legs dangling over the dock in the deep area. And one of the high school kids kind of strutting down, the, you know, making the whole dock bounce, and you're just wondering what he's about to do. And for whatever reason, out of this host of kids sitting on this dock, he picks me out, and he just kicks me in the back and knocks me into the water and starts laughing to his buddies. The problem is, I didn't know how to swim at all. And so I just, I under and I'm just kind of clambering for life and, and I keep going under and taking in more water, coming up and gagging and choking, going under and nobody's noticing me. Everybody in Clear Lake is just having a great old time swimming around, playing, throwing beach balls and stuff and I'm here drowning, literally drowning. And all I remember is that one person noticed me and it was just some middle-aged mom. I, I can't even picture her name out. I couldn't pick her out in a crowd. Some mom in just a mom swimsuit, whatever that looks like, and she, she just wanders over to me. And I just remember her plucking me out of the depths of the water and drags my retching, gagging, choking life and body to shore. And I sat there on the shore of Clear Lake Beach, and I remember I just cried for about 20 minutes. I mean, my whole life passed before me. It didn't take long, you know, I was a little kid. But I mean, I, I thought I was gone. And it took me a while at first, I was just happy I was alive, but then after I contemplated, I start to remember, I am here because this lady saved me. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for that woman. And I wished I knew her name. I wished I had the means. If I could, and I, I knew who it was, and I had the money, man, I'd buy her a house because I wouldn't be here without her. And that is the natural response. If you've ever had your life saved, if somebody ever donated an organ to you, you, know, you name your children after them. That is our natural response to this kind of mercy and benevolence. And the Bible says that when we contemplate this mercy, you understand what God has saved you from, your natural response should be worship. And so I will tell you this, if today you struggle to worship God, the problem isn't that God isn't worthy, it's that you're not aware of what you've been saved from. You don't fully appreciate what God has drugged you out of. You don't understand the horrors of hell quite enough yet, because if you will, you will worship you're not going to stand there silent while everybody sings. You're not going to let, let your life be completely unaffected by the mercy of God. When you're aware of mercy, you will worship. 
In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is meeting, eating a meal at the house of a Pharisee. Pharisees were religious leaders back then, but it was during a period of time when it was cold and formal and legalistic. But they invited him in because Jesus was a curiosity. Who was this guy garnering all this attention? So they invited him in. And when they did, they're sitting down at this meal and uh, they notice that this woman comes in that the Bible simply refers to in Luke 7 as a sinner. In other words, she was somebody that the society looked down upon, uh, likely in the occupation of a prostitute. And so she comes in and she begins to worship Jesus. In Luke 7, 37, it says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This is not something that's cheap. It's not something that a woman in her occupation should be able to afford. But she takes all that she has and she offers it to Jesus as a gift, okay? That's part of her worship. But then we see it says standing behind him, not even in front of him, but behind him in humility says she was weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is a beautiful picture of worship. This is somebody who understood where she came from. She knew she was not worthy of being saved. Okay? She knew she deserved punishment. She knew that any kind of condemnation came upon her was just because of her actions, and yet Jesus offers her forgiveness, and so she comes back to him, and she offers him this offering. She offers him her tears. She offers him her affection. I would, offer, I would tell you that she offers him her glory. Remember, back then, what, what is she doing here? She is weeping on his feet and doing what? Wiping it with her hair. Remember the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 11, that a woman's hair is her crown. It is her glory. In Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures, the, your sacredness started up here and went down here. So the most sacred part of you is the very top part of you, your head, and even more importantly, your hair. That's why if you ever go to Thailand or some other places in the East to this day, you don't touch little kids on their hair. Okay, that's, their, that's sacred to them. It's also why you don't show them in Thailand the bottom of your soles. This would be highly offensive. You don't point to things. You don't step on money that gets away. It's unholy. So the feet were this vile, unholy thing, even in Jewish culture. It was the one thing you could not demand that your servant do for you is to wash your feet. If somebody did that, it would be an act of extreme humiliation. Enter Jesus, who washes the feet of his disciples, as an example to you and I. Okay, so this woman, she is going to the, what is considered the most unholy part of a person, and she is taking what? Her hair, the most sacred part of her, and she is wiping Jesus' feet with her own hair. This is an act of contrition and humility in the highest degree, and she is worshiping Jesus. She rightly recognizes who, she, who he is, and she worships him with all that she has. Now, we still have some Pharisees sitting in the house. How do they feel about this woman who is worshiping God so freely and so openly and so emotionally? How are they going to respond to this? The Pharisees are going to do what Pharisees do. Pharisees don't worship God because they're self-righteous. They feel that basically God has them to think that they're in heaven. And so if you're self-righteous, you think you've earned it, you're not going to worship Jesus. You're going to think highly of yourself. And so these self-righteous men, they're not going to worship Jesus but they're going to criticize those that do. That's what Pharisees do. They don't come to the house of God to worship God. They come to the house of God to criticize. And so that's exactly what they do with Jesus in John chapter 7. Verse 39, it says, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Another good sign that you are a card-carrying Pharisee is you look down on other people. They're not as good as you. 
They maybe don't have the money you have. They don't smell like you do. They don't dress as nicely as you do. Maybe you don't, uh, you don't like what they've done. Oh, this person, they've been homeless or they've been on drugs. They've gone through some hard times. They're divorced. There's some kind of stigma we're putting on them and that makes us feel better than them. Friends, this is what Pharisees do. They think they're actually better than other people. And it means that we have forgotten what manner of person we were when Jesus saved us. So self-righteous people, no, they don't worship, but they love to criticize those who do. And so as soon as Jesus hears them saying this, he tells a story. That's when you know you're in trouble. When you do something and Jesus says, let me tell you a story. You're about to be immortalized in the Bible as a bad example. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And he tells a story about a money lender who lends money, a great sum of money to one person and a, a paltry sum to another, and asks them the question, which one is going to love that money lender more? And they said, the one who's been forgiven much. And Jesus says, I'm glad you got the moral of that story. Let me go on. He says, you're the object of this story. Luke 7:45. he says, you gave me no kiss, which was an appropriate gesture of acceptance and love back then, even between men. You may kiss them on the beard or the side of the face. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, something that is sacred and holy, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her, tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, it's not that the Pharisees had very little to forgive, that they were better than her, and they were forgiven this much, and she was forgiven this much, the Bible wants us to understand that in Christ, we are all sinners and we are all forgiven this much. But there are some people who think so highly of themselves, they think, yeah, I came to heaven, but I was only forgiven a little bit, so I'm a little better than other people. And Jesus says that kind of person who feels that God, that they're basically a little better person than other people, they're not gonna worship God much because they feel like they've only been forgiven some. But those who understand, and that's all of us, that we have been forgiven an infinite sin against an infinite God, he says, these will love much. They are worshiping God based upon the mercies of God, that I'm really not that good, but God is. And that is a sufficient reason for me to worship today. So self-righteous people, they don't worship God. They still come to church, but they don't worship God. Self-righteous people worship themselves. They're here for what pleases them, not what pleases him. However, forgiven sinners, people who understand what you've been saved from in eternity in hell, and you understand what you've been saved from, this mountain of sins that we have collected in a debt against God, that person, we can tell when they're not self-righteous, you're going to be worshipers of the highest degree. Number two, we see that worship is sacrifice. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Are you okay with being called that? What did God just call you and I? A sacrifice. What was a sacrifice? It was an animal, this being who had much of their life ahead of them, and they offer themselves, they are being offered up for the benefit of somebody else. Their life is being taken in the glory of God. And God calls you and I that. It is something that we give to God in our prime, and we offer it up to him as a living sacrifice. It's important that we say living here because God isn't, you know, isn't prescribing ritual suicide. Instead, he says that we are to be living sacrifices, that we are to continually and daily offer ourselves up to God to see every day and every moment that we have is something that belongs to him, so I'm going to give God what he rightfully deserves. 
Harold Best, dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College, defined worship in this way. He said, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I do and all that I can ever become in the light of God. He sees worship as just, it's sacrifice. It's a continual outpouring of ourself that we are still alive, but very much offering God whatever comes into my life is available to him. And we offer it back up to him. And we do this every single day. It's why Paul in Philippians 2 said he offers himself as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. That for the betterment of other people and their faith, Paul is willing to just empty his life out for the Lord. God fills it up and Paul just continues to empty it out before God. And he makes that choice every single day. We see worship is voluntary. The command here is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This word present is the idea of, of something that you, it's coming from within you. You are choosing to present and to bring yourself before God. Remember the Bible has already called us a living sacrifice. We're the sacrificial animal. And the Bible says, I don't want somebody else to present you against your will to God. I want you to desire to present your body and your life and all that it represents. I want you to offer yourselves as a living offering to God. Present yourselves. Much like what they would do with one of the animals. They would, uh, the Jews, they would present it before the priest to be observed and examined. Is this, is this creature you know, sufficient for a sacrifice? And then you offer it to them. The Bible says we do that ourselves, willingly. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, in other words, I want to follow Jesus, I want to go where Jesus is going, I want to go to heaven, I want to be one of his disciples. He says, if you want to be that, let him deny himself that our body's going to say, hey, go do this. And you say, no, Jesus wouldn't have me do it. So we deny ourselves what our natural inclination is. He says, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus daily calls us to take up our cross, this instrument of pain, death, and torture, that we are to willingly give up what we are, give up our life, give up our money, our time, our thoughts, our praise, and we willingly, sacrificially offer it to God, and we choose to do this every day. And the reason he says we have to offer ourselves daily is because as a living sacrifice, you know what they've said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. And so we gotta get ourselves back on. Every day we give, our, you know, we give our life to God, but then every day we find that I'm off doing my own thing. And I have to daily go, no, I'm gonna deny myself and I'm gonna get back up on that altar and I'm gonna offer myself daily to God. We see here, be that worship is holy. What kind of sacrifice does God want us to be to him? Okay, he says that we are to be holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. See, in Jewish worship, you weren't allowed to give God any, just any kind of animal, were you? When, you? when you brought them a lamb, it had to be a special kind of lamb. You couldn't bring them, you're sickly, and go, well, this one's about to die. <laughs> Let's give it to God. That'll be, that'll be all right. It won't hurt me much. Hey, here's one that's really old. Don't know how, many, how long it's got. Certainly not in childbearing years. Let's go ahead and give this old, decrepit one to God. Or here's one that's, you know, missing a leg. Wolf got a hold of this one. Let's give God this three-legged tripod of a sheep. Let's go ahead and just offer him to the Lord. We don't need that one anymore. He's not getting around well anyway. No, he says, when we offer something to God, Leviticus 23, 12 says, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. In other words, it's not an offering to God unless it costs us something. We have to feel the sting and the pain of when I give this to God, it is, it's, it's hindering me in some way because I'm giving of my life to him. If our sacrifice to God 
costs us nothing, is it truly an offering? Or is it we're just throwing God the spare change we found in between the seats of the car and we throw it out, you know? It should, it should cost us. And so he says, you shall offer a male lamb without blemish in its youth, okay, a year old. This is not an old lamb, this is a young one. And so God is asking us to offer ourselves in whatever we have left, the best of what we have. And so this is, this is a call to all those in this room who still think of themselves as young. We won't have you raise your hand if you think you're young today, but especially today, God is talking to our, our younger people who tend to congregate over here, okay? So uh, God is saying that we are to offer God our best. We don't say, you know what, I'm gonna go out in the world, I'm gonna make my way in the world, I'm gonna make my name, I'm gonna earn my money, I'm gonna have my family, I'm gonna do, travel the world, I'm gonna see and do everything I want to do, and then maybe someday down the road, I will offer myself as an offering to God. You know, back when you move your way toward the back rows of the church, <laughs> when I get older. The problem is, you wait until that time, you may not wanna give yourself to God anymore. You found that living for yourself was pretty nice and easy and comfortable. I don't wanna be a sacrifice anymore. And so, like Solomon gave the admonition, Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And if you're wondering what makes those days difficult, it's because you're not old yet. <laughs> you know, you, you got the treasures and difficulties of life and now your body is fighting against you. And so the Bible says, offer yourselves God before this time. Give him the best of what you have. Give him your youth. He says that we are to be holy and acceptable to God. It describes the condition of the sacrifice that is to be without blemish. This word holy, it means consecrated. It's something that is pure and kept pure because it is separated and kept apart from things that would make it impure. The best example I can always think of is your toothbrush. That is one of the few things in your life that you kind of don't like sharing with most people, I'm guessing. Uh, even those of you who are married couples, I won't have you raise your hand, but how many of you even like to have your mate use your toothbrush? You come in there and your toothbrush is already wet and now you're mad because that's your toothbrush. It is holy, it is consecrated, it is set apart for, me, or for you. And when it is not holy, that's bothersome to us. I use this story with permission. That's when you know you're about to get something fun, okay? Uh, I love my mother and father-in-law. They've always supported us all throughout our ministry and life, and sometimes they support us with wonderful sermon illustrations. We were a young, poor couple living with an elderly woman in our church because we had no money and she needed friends. And so we were staying in some of her back rooms and she was gone for six weeks one time. And so our Nana come down and visit us and, and she, she stayed in her room and used her restroom and stuff. And, and I don't know how we discovered this, but we found out that, uh, that uh, we saw this toothbrush was now on the counter and wet when previously it was on the floor in the shower. And she had used this toothbrush, and the problem was it wasn't her toothbrush. And it gets worse. Uh, it was the toothbrush that uh, this little granny had left in the bathroom floor because while she was in there taking a shower, she liked to get down there and scrub the grout in the tiles. You know, the stuff where all the off-scourings of the body goes and collects in the grout, and then you use the toothbrush to collect all the off-scourings of the gross human body, and it's all there in that toothbrush. And it looked clearly very similar to her own toothbrush. And so she had think, well, how did my toothbrush up end up on the ground? And so she picks it up and cleanses it in some various way, uh, and then proceeds to use it. And we were just, Amber and I were horrified at this, that she's using a grout toothbrush in her mouth, and it's disgusting and vile to us because a toothbrush is meant to be holy. And as soon as it becomes unholy, I mean, that's straight to the trash. 
The Bible asks for us to be a sacrifice to God that is holy. It is kept pure and separated from things because we see ourselves as belonging to God. We're an offering to him. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. Our usefulness to God is proportional to our holiness. What was one of Jesus' chief complaints about the Pharisees? You wash the outside of the dish, what people see, but you don't wash the inside of the dish where the food actually goes. What really matters most to God, the inside of the dish, you don't care about. You don't care that you're actually a good person. You don't care that you're actually kind, that you're actually loving, that you actually speak well to others, that you actually serve God from the heart. You just are concerned that you appear that way. And so our usefulness to God is in direct proportion to our holiness, our being pure and set apart and remain pure for him. Just as you won't use a dirty toothbrush, we can't expect God to use us in great and wonderful ways for him if we are living unholy, unchaste lives. Well, Romans 12 says that this process of daily offering our lives to God, our time to God, our money to God, our efforts to God, is something that he calls our spiritual worship. Now, this is something we gotta study. Spiritual worship. Now, some of your translations may call it your reasonable service, okay? Um, Let's explain why we have a bit of a difference here. This word spiritual here in the Greek is logikos. Okay, we get the word logic from it, logical. Okay, but in context here, he's not talking about that our worship is the logical outcome of, our, of, of being saved by God, which it is. But instead here, he is saying that in the way that we worship God, that we worship God using our minds in a reasoned way, that in our worship of him, it is reasoned worship. This is to distinguish it from the way the rest of the world worships. Okay, the rest of the world, uh, you go to, we would go to sometimes Tibetan Buddhist temples and things, and they would just enter in and do things in a methodical clockwork kind of way. I mean, we, I sat down next to a guy, I'm just talking to a friend, I got this monk two feet away from us, and he's just chanting through this book. And you, his heart is not there. I mean, he's, he's out just kind of looking around, scanning the horizon, he is bored out of his mind. Whatever home chala chala means, you know, he wasn't into that. And so he was just singing, he was, or he was just kind of going through his chants, he was dressed in the right robes, he was in the right place, he's chanting the right things, but his heart was so far from it. He's just doing a religious thing because it's, it's what they considered to be the right thing to do. Even in Jesus' day, you had the Pharisees, you had the Jews. <laughs> Isaiah 1 talks about how I'm tired of your new moons and your feasts and your Sabbaths. You always come to your religious events when you're supposed to come, but do you know why? You sing your songs, but do you know why you're singing or even what you're singing? You know, y'all are giving your offerings, but do you know why you're giving your offerings? And so church is something that can just become mechanical function that we do because it's the right thing at the right time, but our hearts are far from God. We're not even considering what we're doing. Even this morning, I want you to contemplate and think about it. When you were singing these worship songs, were you thinking about the message of the music? I hope you were but some people don't. And so our worship is to be reasoned. We are to think about what we do. Paul criticized the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14 for not using their mind when they worship in contemplating God. They, were, they, they took the gift of tongues, which was a, a gift used to authenticate 
gospel messengers. It was a proclamation against the Jews. They had gone against their Messiah, but they were using it just for their own selves in kind of self-serving sort of ways. And so they would pray without thinking. They're just uttering just kind of nonsense words or whatever kind of words came to their mind or whatever they're, they're, they're praying, uh, but they don't know what they're saying. And they did the same thing with their singing. They're singing, but they don't, they're not thinking about what they're singing. And so Paul told them, he says, follow my example, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. He says, when he prays, he says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. That I'm never going to enter into a state of prayer when I don't know what I'm saying. He says, when I sing, he says, I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That he's not just going to utter words. He's not just going to engage in some exciting activity. He's, he's going to contemplate the worship of God. And he calls this our spiritual worship. It is our reasoned worship that we are to contemplate God and give him our life as an appropriate response. Now, this word worship that he uses here is a word associated with the activities of the Levitical priesthood the activities that they did. That's why some of your Bible translations just left it translated as service. Which is it, worship or service? Yes. It is your service that you do to God as an act of worship to declare his worthiness to you. I'm serving God because of his worthiness. And so it is both service and it is worship. We're gonna see number three here, that worship is transformation. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I want you to see first here, A, that worship is exclusive. He says, do not be conformed to this world. And the reason he has to say that is because the world is constantly trying to put us in its form, doesn't it? It wants us to be shaped and to look just like the world. But what God is saying here is that we cannot worship God and be friends with the world at the same time. We cannot put our hand in Jesus' hand and say, I want to walk with Jesus, and then we take a hold of the world and say, I'm going to have the best of both worlds. I'm going to live kind of like all my friends at work. I'm going to talk like them, think like them, act like them, but I'm going to hold on to Jesus because I still want to go to heaven. Do you know God is going to make you choose? He's not content in sharing you with somebody else. God isn't going to share you with the world. The Bible says you can't be conformed to this world and worship God. I mean, you try that with your wife. You're going to take a hold of your wife's hand in one hand. You're going to have your girlfriend's hand in the other. You ever try that out? You'll be a one-armed man, won't you? Your wife's gonna make you choose. She's gonna make you pick that my soul, my heart is exclusively for this woman right here. And God is gonna make us choose in that same way. James 4, 4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world does what? Makes himself an enemy of God. So when we allow ourselves to be conformed into looking like the world and acting like the world, thinking like the world, holding hands to the world, enjoying everything this world has, he says, forget trying to hold hands with God here because when you're a friend of the world and that's what you really want out of your life, he says, we make ourselves an enemy of God. And so he says, don't be conformed. Don't be shaped or molded by it. You ever seen square watermelons? Not so much here so much. But uh, in Asia, you'll see weird things like this, you know? Uh, Japanese, they really love uh, fruit in many different ways. They, they sell this really expensive fruit. It's this great gift to get fruit. You go to somebody's house, even in China, you give them oranges, you give them fruit. Uh, but something they do is they thought, you know, we love round watermelons and all, but how cool it would be to give somebody a square watermelon. And so what they'll do is they'll take this watermelon when it's early in its stage of growth, and they will put it inside this clear plastic mold. And then as it grows, 
it allows itself to be restricted by the confines of this mold, and then eventually it grows up into the shape of the world, and you all end up looking like square watermelons. Okay? So when, when Paul says, don't be conformed by this world, what he's saying is that you're meant to grow a certain way into the image of Jesus Christ, but if you allow the world to do this to you, it's gonna put you into its mold, and it's gonna say, we won't let you grow beyond these borders. We will restrict your understanding of God. We will restrict your worship of God. We will restrict what you believe. And you will believe like the world does. You will believe in abortion. You will believe in homosexuality. You will believe that kids can be actual cats. You're gonna believe these things. And if you speak out against it, we will crush you. And so that social pressure conforms us so that we functionally look much like the rest of the world. We vote like the world does. We act like the world does. We live like the world does. We watch what the world watches. At that point, friends, we've been conformed. If, if the world looks at our life with the people that we work with and they think that we live much like they do, friends, we've been conformed. We are shaped and we look like them. Christians, we're supposed to, the Bible calls us a peculiar people. Not that we're so much strange, it's just what we're just that different. The world looks at our life and they said, wow, you're not shaped like me. If the world looks at our life and they said, you're shaped just like us, friends, we can safely say that we've been conformed by the world and not by God. The problem is, later we're gonna see here that God has a desire to conform us into the image of his son. You can't be shaped like both. You can't be a round watermelon and a square watermelon. We're either shaped like God or we're shaped like the world. And the Bible says if you're gonna worship God, you can't allow the world to shape you. You've gotta allow God to be the one to shape you. In fact, he says we need to be transformed. It's a Greek word from which we get the English word metamorphosis, that God wants us to be transformed, that our true worship of God, if we're truly worshiping him, we see that he's worthy. It transforms us into his image. We become what we worship. And we're, we're, we're not just forgiven, we're fully changed, like caterpillar to butterfly kind of metamorphosis. Caterpillars, they start out these short, lumpy little things, 16 legs, and they're crawling around, and they're eating a vegan diet. And they're just, I mean, somehow they're still getting fat. And eventually, though, they submit themselves to the natural process of God, and they clamp onto a leaf, and eventually they form this chrysalis in, inside of which their body liquefies. As a kid, I always thought caterpillars just grew wings. They do not just grow wings. Their whole body is dissolved into this just goo. And then eventually, God, through these natural processes that he created, reforms this into a butterfly, and he's nothing like what he was before. He used to have 16 legs, now he has six. He used to be short and stumpy and fat and crawled along the ground. Now, he's beautiful. He doesn't eat leaves anymore. He eats nectar from the flowers. He's not foraging around on the forest floor or on a tree anymore. He's flying in the sky until you hit him in the radiator of your car. And that's the life cycle of butterflies. They all eventually end up there. It's where they go to die. Uh, but that's, that's the transformation that God has called you and I to. It's no less, small, it's no less of a difference of a, of a caterpillar to a butterfly than it is believer, unbeliever to a believer. And then God wants to conform us into the image of his sons, what Romans 8, 29 says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. We can't be a square and round watermelon. We can't be a worldly-shaped Christian and a Jesus-shaped Christian. We either allow Jesus to conform us or we allow the world to shape our life. You see, be, be here, worship begins in the mind. This transformation, Paul says, is by the renewal of your mind. That true worship begins as an intellectual faculty. It is by the renewing 
of the mind. That true worship is always the response of the heart to who God is and what he has done. And then we change how we live as a result of that. If our worship does not begin with an awareness of who God is, an awareness of his works, then any kind of emotional feeling that we attribute to worship is just that. It's just an emotional feeling. And friends, can I tell you, it, worship is not simply an emotion. It begins as a faculty of the mind understanding who God is and what he has done. Otherwise, we're not responding to truth. We're responding to a bass drum. We're not responding to truth. What feels like the Holy Spirit working in us now may just be a key change. What feels sometimes like worship is just the kind of experience that you might get going to a Taylor Swift concert. Not me, but maybe you. You know, and you're just feeling all welled up with emotional feelings. And, and emotions are not bad. I'm not villainizing emotions. Emotions are often a follow through of those intellectual faculties. When we understand who God is, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, it is natural to have a very emotional response to that. Like the woman who, understanding what Jesus did for her, the mercies of God, she now is at his feet weeping. So feelings aren't wicked, they're not evil, but they are not the end goal of true worship. Worship begins in the mind with what we think. And so our worship is advanced or limited by our understanding of who God is and what he's done. It's why Theron begins, or all throughout our worship services, he's constantly bringing us words and verses. Why? Why does Theron do that? Why can't we just sing songs, Theron, and get to the preaching? Because Theron's job isn't just to make you sing. It's not just to make you feel excited. His goal is to get you to contemplate who God is and contemplate what he has done. And then what flows out of your mouth is not just sing time, it's a response to God of worship. And so here, I remember Jesus was talking to a woman in John 4, he says, she was stressing about kind of the externals of worship. Should we worship in Jerusalem? Should we worship at Gerizim? And Jesus says, the time is coming where you're not gonna worship in either of these places. It doesn't matter. He says, but those who worship God because God is a spirit, those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. That God, we worship God in spirit. It's not localized to a single location. That we worship God wherever we are. And we worship in truth. We worship according to what we know to be true about God. Alistair Begg once said, genuine worship in spirit and truth is only possible when we are captured by an overwhelming sense of the reverence of the presence of God. And so, while worship may contain feelings, worship is not a feeling. And often with us in modern worship, that's, that's what we've, we've conflated the two. If I feel very emotionally aroused, what is it? I'm worshiping God and the Holy Spirit's in this place. If I don't feel very emotionally worked up, then the Holy Spirit's not in this place. Is that true? No, worship is not a feeling. Feelings may arise from worship. But when we come to church, we're not coming to church to seek an emotional experience. If you are, then this has become the worship of self and not Jesus. Worship isn't about how we feel so much as it is what we are offering to God. One seeks to offer God a sacrifice of praise. Another is looking to extract from that music a feeling for myself rather than to offer it up as an offering of praise to God. And so feelings aren't the end goal of worship. The glory of God is. If you're a note-taking person, I want you to write that down. Feelings are not the end goal of your worship. The glory of God is. And I pray that that's true for you as well. 
Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Sometimes praise is a sacrifice. You maybe went through a hard time this weekend. Maybe your marriage is struggling today. Maybe you've lost somebody close to you. Maybe this was a hard Thanksgiving for you. And we come to church, what do we do? We choose to give God an offering of praise anyway. Why? Because I feel like it? It's because he's worth it. We see here, see, that worship changes how we live. Romans 12, 2 ends. He says, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We don't have time to fully explore dokimazo, that word that means to test, but the Bible assumes that everything that comes into our life, we're, we're constantly testing. Is this good? Is it virtuous in the eyes of God? Is it acceptable? Does God find this pleasing? Is it perfect? Is it complete? Does this fulfill all of God's desires for me? Okay, that is what worship should drive us to, is to a place where the only thing that matters to me is, will at the end of my life I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. If that is the desire of your heart and life, you may just well be worshiping God and not just worshiping yourself. That you only care whether or not what I do and how I live pleases him. You see, because true love changes who we are. When I got married, my wife changed me in many ways. She is still changing me, aren't we, babe? Uh, there are things about me. Uh, before we got married, I was not the cleanest fellow. I was not always the most considerate fellow, but I got married and I started working on things. I've not arrived, but I'm working on these things. And things that I do change. Every year in Orlando, we would always take her out to a Christmas date. I'd get dressed up in a fine suit because I like suits. No, uh, because I wanted to just show her that this is important to me. And I would take her out to a very expensive restaurant. Did I enjoy spending, you know, $100 on a meal? No. Um, I would rather go eat Burger King. But we, I'd take her out to a fancy restaurant because I knew that that would please her. And it showed her honor. And then we would walk across the street to the Bob Carr Performing Arts Center, and I would take her to the Nutcracker Ballet. If you knew me, you would be laughing right now. I'm not a ballet guy. I'm not about a guy who likes watching guys in skinny tights, you know, dancing and prancing. I don't prance, I don't wanna watch men prance. <laughs> Ballet to me is about as appealing as a chorus of dogs at 3 a.m. And so for me to go to ballet is a real act of love. In, in, in this particular case, this date, I'm telling you, it was nothing about me and it was all about me showing love to her. I was sacrificing my night because I wanted, and I enjoyed our time, by the way. Um, I still gotta go home with this woman. <laughs> I enjoyed our time, but I did this all for her. It was an outpouring, it was a sacrifice. I am sacrificing watching prancing men in tights. I'm sacrificing money. I'm sacrificing all this because I loved her. And it, and it, and it, out, it, just, it changed me from within in what I desire to do. Friends, the worship of God will do the same in us or it's not worship. The worship of God will change who we are and we will begin to sacrifice things for God. We'll sacrifice money. I didn't, you don't give to God, you just give God whatever you can find in your wallet, right? Instead of planning on giving. You don't, you don't serve God, you're one of the people who just show up to church, right? But when you worship God, you want to give him your life. You're not the person coming to church saying, well, somebody better talk to me. You're, going, you're coming to church saying, who can I come and encourage? You see, that is a worshipful spirit. It, is the, it, it re results, John Piper said, in demonstrable acts of love for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so I just wanna ask you, has your worship of God transformed you? Has it changed how you view God? Has it changed how you view others? Does it change how you live? It has to, if it is true in genuine worship, that we want to know that all that we do 
is good, acceptable, and perfect in the sight of God. Let's close. Father, we thank you today as we study what worship is. Father, there's not a soul in here, myself included, that when I see this definition of worship, that I don't find myself challenged in personal ways to worship you better, to worship you selflessly. Lord, I pray that in my own heart and life that I would be a transformed individual, that I would be a holy sacrifice, that I would be reasoned in my worship, that I would be actively, mindfully engaged every time I sing, every time we study the Bible, even when we pray that my mind would not wander, God, but that you would help my mind to be actively engaged in what we're doing, that I wouldn't end up with just pharisaic worship, just a religious activity that I check off, but that, God, you would you would help me to mindfully engage in the worship of our God. I pray that you are pleased with the mindful engagement of your people here today. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.